I want to start by telling you a story. This is a true story about Yeshua of Nazareth. If you uh, want to look it up sometime, it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. But I'm just, I'm just going to tell it to you, and then we're going to ask some questions about this story. So I want you to really go with me in your imagination, and we're going to like live out this story, okay? Um, this is what happened. Two, almost 2,000 years ago, across the ocean, in the land of Israel, there was this young itinerant rabbi, and his name was Yeshua. And he actually grew up as a construction worker. He did carpentry, and um, he eventually hit the road and started teaching. And he was famous for being a miracle worker. And he was from the northern province of Israel, the province of the Galil, uh, full of rolling hills, there was a lot of farming and fishing industry happening there, and he and his disciples would make the hike down to the holy city of Jerusalem several times a year for festivals. Now, that's what they did. They had made the hike up to Jerusalem in the springtime, so the rainy season was almost over, the green grass was everywhere, the flowers were in bloom, and uh, it says that Yeshua and his disciples were sitting in the temple. So if you can close your eyes and picture with me this massive temple with great stone walls buzzing with tens of thousands of people crowding in and out of it, animals bleeding all over the place like, you know, sheep. <laughs> Some of them were bleeding too uh, when they did them in for the sacrifices, uh, the priests. So you just, just so much action, so much noise. I'm sure the disciples' minds were just swimming because it was only a couple days before that the Yeshua rode into the city on a donkey. The hundreds of people were shouting and throwing their coats on the ground in front of him. People thought he was, gonna, he was the king and that they were going to start a revolution and kick the Romans' butts. All of these things were happening. And then these showdowns started happening between their rabbi and some of the religious leaders, the, the, the best of the, the, the Sadducees and the best of the Pharisees were putting their, their geniuses forward to try and trump this guy and none of them worked, right? And so Yeshua, he was in the temple, he was teaching, he was healing people, there was a lot of action, right? If you've ever been to Jerusalem, even today, Passover is super busy. So anyway, in the midst of all of this action and this noise and all of these people, we all of a sudden go zooming into this little shot. And there is the receptacle where people donate money to keep the temple going, to cover its operating expenses and uh, those kinds of things. And there's Yeshua just sitting next to this receptacle where people drop their cash in with his disciples. And they're not doing anything. They're just hanging out and they're just watching people. And so as they're sitting there watching people, these, these rich dudes in this nice plush, these nice plush clothes in like gold bling, like serious gold and diamond bling. They all start walking up and they're pulling out their coins, big fat silver and gold coins glinting in the sunshine and they're dropping them in one by one. Bing! 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 That kind of idea, right? And everyone's like, wow, those guys are giving a lot of money. They must be really generous. Woohoo! Must have a lot of cash too, right? And so anyway, several rich guys do this and there's a lot of other people coming along and dropping their money in, giving it to God. And um, suddenly someone catches their eye. It's this little old lady. And she's kind of stooping along, walking slowly. Her clothes are clean, but they're threadbare. She probably got them from, I don't know, somebody who got them from Valley Village and then wore them for a year and then gave them away. That's the, that's the kind of idea. 
And so they watched this lady and she just walked up really quietly next to these guys and all their gold bling and all of their jewelry and fancy stuff. And she had two little copper coins mounted to next to nothing, maybe a couple bucks, eh? And she dropped them in and she walked away. And that was the story. That's what happened. Now, what happened next is Yeshua was watching that, that old lady. They could tell that she was a widow. Her, her husband had died at some point. She was on her own. So life was tough for her. It was really tough to make ends meet. She was just scraping by. She probably had some people helping her out a little bit. And uh, Yeshua was watching her. And when he saw that, he turned to his, his Talmudim, his disciples. And he said, did you see that widow? And then he said, uh, this is what he literally said. He said, I tell you the truth. Now, if you want to translate that to English, the best translation to English would be him saying, seriously, guys, when you hear Yeshua say, I tell you the truth, if you, you just imagine him saying, guys, seriously? So then this is what he said next. He said, did you see that widow that gave that money? Guys, seriously? She gave more than all those other rich dudes. Because all those other rich dudes, they gave out of their surplus. They had more than enough. But she gave out of her poverty. She gave everything she had to live on. And that's the story. And I want to I wanna ask you some questions and think with you about, about that story today from the Gospel of Luke, this true story about our Master Yeshua. Um, firstly, who would you identify, who do you identify with in this story? Have you had experiences in your life that maybe are a little bit comparable to some of these people? Maybe you can identify with Yeshua. Um, it's been a busy couple days and you're just taking some time out. You're just sitting down, you're hanging out, and you're uh, people watching. Maybe you can identify with his disciples, kind of the, the tag-alongs, right? They're like, well, Yeshua's sitting down. Right on, let's sit down and uh, take a break. Who knows, maybe they were daydreaming. Maybe he was people watching and they were like sitting there on their, their iPods or uh, iPhones seeing what was going on in the world. I don't know. Like, you know, maybe who do you identify with? Or maybe, maybe the rich guys. How many of us can identify with the rich guys who are, you know, had comfortable lives and uh, have uh, more than enough? Maybe you have a bit extra in the bank account. And yeah, I give a little bit, you know. How many of us could identify with the widow? Um, you know, you had a loved one and that loved one is gone. Um, life used to be much more comfortable than it is now. Life's a bit lonely. It's, it's, it's tough to make ends meet. How many of you can, how, can look at times in your life and say, yeah, I, I gave until it hurt. I gave sacrificially. So, you know, these people in this story, I think, I think we can identify with every person in this story in different times of our life. Let me ask you another question. What do you, what do you like about this story? Or what bothers you about this story? Uh, something that I really like about this story is just that Yeshua was people watching. Like seriously, the Son of God, he could have been doing so much stuff and he was just sitting there watching people come and throw money in the, the donation box or whatever, eh? I love that. I, I, I really like that he was noticing this poor widow and that he, uh, he spoke well of her to his disciples. That just, it's such an insight into who he is. It, a couple things that bother me about this story, it bothers me that those rich guys got more credit probably than what they deserved and that that poor widow probably got less credit than what she deserved, you know, at face value. Here are another couple of questions for us. What does this story tell us about people and what does it tell us about Yeshua? Here's some things that I uh, thought of. This story, this story tells us about people that some people have a lot, some people have a little. 
you have some haves and some have-nots in this world. Uh, this story tells us that some people are cheap. I'm cheap. I'm partly Jewish and I'm partly Scottish. And neither of those people groups are famous for being really generous, okay? I like, if I can save a buck, I am exhilarated. Ask Genevieve. So uh, some people are cheap. Some people are generous. Maybe naturally or sometimes it, it takes time and people change, eh? Maybe there's even hope for me. But um, another thing this story tells us is that things aren't always what they appear with people. You have the rich guys that were all blinged up and then you have this poor widow in her threadbare clothes. And you look at them at first glance and you could make a judgment call. But the story tells us, no, you can't measure people in dollar figures or you can't all of a sudden, you can't necessarily judge them by quantifiable things that our culture would look at and say, yeah, this person's got it together. No, this person doesn't. It doesn't work that way. Something this story tells us about people is that you've got to look deeper. You've got to look at the heart. Um, what, about, what about Yeshua? What does this story tell us about Yeshua? A couple of things it tells us. Uh, one, he likes people. He's not always on the go. He's not always busy. Apparently, he takes time out to just sit down, hang out, and people watch. I like that because I love people watching. So it's nice to know that I have theological grounds for my, my people watching tendencies. <laughs> um, something else this story tells us about Yeshua is that you can watch with him. You can people watch with him. Did you notice it wasn't just him by himself? At least one of his disciples were there because this story got recorded. It's kind of cool that back then, Yeshua's guys could follow him around. They could be like the ultimate tag-alongs. They could hang out with him. And they could sit there and kind of watch the world go by. And he would lean over and be like, hey, look at that person. And he'd say something about that person. And here's the cool thing. He died just like everybody else in his generation. In fact, he was brutally murdered. But it didn't end there because God raised him from the dead. And you know what that means? Yeshua of Nazareth is out there somewhere. And he might even be a little closer than what some people think. Now, this is kind of crazy, but like, think about this with me for a second. How many of us are fifth dimensional people? Like your, your average person, we live in four dimensions, the four dimensions of space and time, right? So like I get up in the morning, I hit the alarm clock, I need to eat food or I die. Um, I can only walk or run so fast, like I'm a four dimensional being. But there's this dimension that, is, that transcends the dimensions of space and time. If you can imagine like a two-dimensional or three-dimensional cartoon trying to um, bust out into the four dimensions that we live in, you are that cartoon. And there is a world beyond that is bigger. And sometimes you can see these little glimpses of it affecting your world. But when Yeshua was raised from the dead, it's kind of crazy because his body was physically raised from the dead. Like, people could see the guy, people could touch him, he could eat fish, which is kind of neat. But he could also do things like appear and disappear at will, walk through walls. I have done that almost, but the wall stopped me. Maybe some of you have tried that with patio doors. I have tried, I've done that with patio doors. Not on purpose, but the patio door stopped me. It's like, Ow! Like, we just can't do it, right? But this is stuff that he can do. Like, he is not just a four-dimensional being. He's a fifth-dimensional being, right? And so do you know what that means? Yeshua is alive forever. He's out there. And just like Yeshua's disciples could sit down with him and watch the world go by and have conversations, he's around. He said stuff like, 
I'm with you forever, all the time. And I'm giving you my spirit so that we can have those conversations, so that you can hear my voice. So that's something that we learn about this story. We can people watch with Yeshua. We can watch the world go by with him. And maybe he'll even tell us stuff. Maybe he'll tell us stuff about people or about situations. Something to think about. Something else we learn about this story is that Yeshua doesn't measure people the way we in our culture do. He doesn't measure people in dollar figures. He doesn't look at people and evaluate them based on what they wear. He looks deeper. He looks at people's hearts. He looks at the big picture. The stuff we can't really figure out unless we really get to know people. Something else this story tells us about Yeshua is uh, when you're struggling, when times are really tough, when you're kind of in your threadbare, shall we say, he knows about that. He's watching you. And uh, he cares about you. And then finally, the one more thing that this story tells us about Yeshua is uh, when people give sacrificially, he really notices that. That means something to him. In fact, he even points that out. Something that we see in this story. He praises sacrificial giving. Here's another question. Um, this story, is there any good news in this story? Like, we live in a world that really needs to hear more good news. If you flick on the news or like scroll down Google News or something, most of it, if you've, maybe you've noticed, is negative. It's a lot of bad news. What does this story tell us about maybe some good news? Maybe some good news about Yeshua. Here's, here's, here's a thought for you. Go, 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 go with me for a second. We are not in the land of Israel anymore. It is not 2,000 years ago. We are scrolling all the way back to before there was time. And all there is is the Father and the Son. And they're loving each other. And they're having a great time together. And they love just looking at each other and being with each other and fellowshipping together. And it's glorious. It's timeless. And they start to hatch a plan. They start to create something in their minds. They start to make up this fantastic blueprint for this creation that they're going to make. It's going to have gophers and earthworms and billions of flowers. And there's going to be this, this planet Earth where little people that look like them are going to live. And they're going to be stars, and the light from those stars is going to take 500 years to reach the little people. And so they're, they're beginning to think about this. They're hatching the plan. And they know from the beginning that if they make these people, they're going to have to make them able to choose them or reject them. Or they're just going to be little figments of their imagination. Little robots. Something like that. And so you know the story. They make the place, they make us, and we just botch the whole thing big time. We just, we just hand the thing over to their enemy, their arch enemy, and uh, the world gets plunged into darkness. And there's this point where there was this conversation between the father and the son. And the son had to make a decision. Would he go on a mission to planet Earth to rescue humanity, to get them back? And he said, yeah, to the mission. And he knew very well when he said yes to that mission that he would have to give a lot. He would have to sacrificially give more than anybody else in the universe has ever given or ever could give. What are some things that the Son of God gave sacrificially? Um, he gave up having a great time with his father. He gave up that, maybe, maybe a little bit of that 
intimacy with his father. He had to leave his father to go on the mission to a distant place in a dark world full of really, really mean people. What are some other things that he gave up? He gave up a lot of comfort. It's not comfortable being a baby. It's not comfortable getting your diaper changed. It's not comfortable having to depend on your mom to nurse you. That's why babies cry a lot. He had to give up comfort. Um, he grew up in a little hick town. When he reached the age of 30, his father said, Kay, it's time to go for this thing. We're going to change gears here. And Yeshua had to sacrificially give up some more. Maybe, maybe you have had to give up some of these things. Yeshua, what did he have to give up? He had to give up his family. He had to give up the hometown where he grew up, had to walk away from his friends. He had to tell his mom and his brothers, who probably kind of needed him around, I have to move. I'm moving. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to move. It'll take you like half a day or a full day at least to get to this town. But I'm moving to a town called Kepharnachum, Capernaum, on the shores of, uh, of the Caner, the Sea of Galilee, right? He had to give up his family to a certain degree. In fact, later on, they came to his new town to pick him up and take him home because they thought he'd gone nuts. So he, 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 uh, he sacrificially gave up his reputation. Yeshua had a career. He was a blue-collar worker. He was a carpenter. He ran a family business. He probably supported his mom and bros to a certain degree. He gave that up too. He sacrificially gave up his career and his family and his business. Um, when Yeshua moved to Capernaum, things just went crazy. Like, he told people to just keep it quiet about what he was doing. They totally didn't listen. They'd run around shouting everywhere. And uh, crowds started flocking to his house. If you could imagine waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning and people are peeking in your window and knocking on your window. And they're like, listen, my mom is really sick. Can you come out and just put your hand on her? And you'd be like, oh, just let me sleep, please. Like, and then you have like 12 guys living in your house. I mean, really, Yeshua gave up his privacy. He gave up his free time. That, that's a pretty big sacrificial get, thing to give up. And he didn't just do it for a couple days. He did it for several years. If you could imagine, like, the ancient version of paparazzi constantly bugging you, if you could imagine crowds always following you around because you had something that they wanted. That, that was a real... That was something he gave up sacrificially. Um, Yeshua ended up traveling around the land of Israel, teaching people, healing them, gave up a lot with that. Eventually he went to Jerusalem and he sacrificially gave his life. He, he gave up everything and then he went and he died for me and he died for you so that I wouldn't have to die, so that I could live. That's sacrificial giving because he's the only guy who didn't need to die. He was the only guy who didn't deserve to get nailed up and to scream in agony, and he did it. That's sacrificial giving. And then finally, did you know there's one more thing that Yeshua sacrificially gave since then? Like he gave his life, and as if that wasn't enough, then he gave himself. This is kind of crazy, but think with me about this for a second. What is God made out of? Like, okay, God isn't made of stuff because he made everything, right? But what, what, like, what, is, what, is the, what is his composition, could you say? Or, or what, is, what, is, what is the stuff that he is? Yeshua actually said very clearly, he said, God is spirit. So God is a spirit. So God the Father, he is a spirit. God the Son, he is a spirit. And guess what? He's holy. So guess what? He is the Holy Spirit. So when Yeshua looked at his disciples, 
And He sent His Holy Spirit to live inside each one of them, to live in their midst. Guess what? Guess what? That was Him. That was Yeshua giving of, of who He was, giving like the stuff that He was. I, I, honestly, I don't even really understand that. I just know that it's real and I can feel it every day. It's like He isn't just the guy who's out there somewhere. He's living inside of me. He has sacrificially given Himself inside of me. Wow, that's the good news from this story. You kind of springboard from the story about a widow who gave sacrificially. And maybe that meant something to Yeshua because he was in that club. He was such a sacrificial giver also. Here's another question. What does this story tell us about Yeshua's countercultural kingdom? You realize like we're kind of living in the matrix of this world, but we're kind of not from the matrix. We kind of live outside the matrix. You hear what I'm saying? The world that we live in is the world of Yeshua's countercultural kingdom. And we are agents on a mission in the matrix to help wake people up and get them out of this thing. Right? So here's the question. Yeshua's world, what does it look like? What does this story tell us about it? Um, here are a couple things. It's not about what you don't have, like what you do with what you don't have. It's about what you do with what you have that counts. That's what Yeshua looks at in His kingdom. Um, something else that, something else from about Yeshua's kingdom that this story tells us is just that, like in His kingdom, we really value sacrificial giving. Like people who give sacrificially are my heroes. They are our heroes, and that's why Yeshua is our greatest hero because He gave more than anybody else. We could never outdo Him. And here's one final question from the story. What does this story tell us about how we can follow Yeshua? Uh, it's kind of a no-brainer probably, right? This is kind of a no-duh. Yeshua sacrificially gave everything. He gave his time. He gave his, his skills. He gave his, the passion of his heart. He gave up whatever maybe personal hopes he could have had. He gave his money. He gave his very life. He gave that for me and for you. For this world. He gave that for this city. So maybe following Yeshua would just mean giving it all up for him too and for his cause, eh? That's pretty crazy actually. You know, like in Israel, a couple thousand years ago, people would give God a tenth of their, uh, their garden vegetables, of the crops that came in, of whatever cash they made from their business. And, you know, we call that tithing today, right? And then Yeshua came and he said, guys, I don't just want that. I want everything. He said, you can't be my disciple unless you give up all your possessions. So all the stuff, either I get it all or you're not in this thing with me. Wow, eh? So it's not like giving sacrificially is even a little like option that we get to choose if we want to do with him. It's like either we say, yeah, Yeshua, you gave everything and I'm in with you. You can have it all. Now, where do you want that to go? What do you want me to do with my time? Where do you want me to live? Those big questions. Either we do that, or he says, I, I don't know you, buddy. I'm sorry. I have no clue who you are. And you're definitely not in my circle of disciples. Something that this, uh, this, story, this story teaches us. So I have one, I have one question for you. Like, um, I'm really getting in a groove in the last month or so about like, the stories and the scriptures. And they're so cool because they're, some of them are really short. Like that little story that we just read, it was like four verses, right? Tiny little story. 
but it's the kind of story you and I can remember and it's the kind of story that maybe you can tell your buddies or coworkers or some family member and it's boom like you can tell it before they even know what you're doing and then it's over and it's not really gonna bug them or turn them off because hey we all love stories right and I don't know sometimes telling a little story like that can kind of open it up for conversation too so that's pretty sweet that's the story I have for you and so I want to ask you this is there somebody in your life maybe a family member co-worker friend or a neighbor that you could tell this story to this week the story about all the rich dudes with the bling the story about the poor old lady who had almost nothing and the story about how Yeshua said that poor lady with the Valley Village clothes she gave way more than those rich dudes. It's a pretty good story, actually, right? It's kind of surprising. It's countercultural. Yeah. So I'll leave that with you. See if you can tell. That's your homework assignment for the week. Tell that story to somebody. Break out of your comfort zone. It'll be fun. I have a, I have a buddy. I, I do jujitsu several times a week, and I have a buddy, and we went out for some wings the other night after training, and I, uh, I told him the story that we told in our community last week. It was the story about the two guys praying, you know, and there was the one, like, really strict religious snob who was praying, and he's like, oh, God, thank you that I'm better than everybody else. And then there was the other guy who was, like, the traitor to the nation, and everybody hated him. And he was, like, and he, like, he really wronged a lot of people. He did horrible stuff, and he knew it. And he said, and he could barely even look up. He was just like, God, like, I'm so messed up. I'm such a sinner. I'm sorry. Please help me, God. Please have mercy on me. And I told that story to my buddy. And it was cool because this guy, like, I don't know, he doesn't really know much about the scriptures. I don't know if he's ever heard a story about Yeshua. But, like, stories like that, you can tell the kinds of people that would, like, if you start going on about systematic theology or even try and, like, go through the spiritual laws with them, their eyes will glaze over, but they'll hear a story, right? So that's going to be your homework assignment for, uh, for this week. I want to give you a little overview, too, of um, our readings from this week. Um, in our community, we're serious about the holy book. So uh, this last week, we read through Luke chapters 21 and 22. And we also read through the book of Leviticus chapters 21 and 24. So I'm going to give you an overview of those chapters and give you a couple, uh, couple highlights from each thing. In Luke chapter 21, we read about Yeshua the prophet. A little under 40 years before the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, Yeshua predicted the thing. That was really impressive. And he even warned his disciples. He said, guys, when you see the city surrounded by armies, get out. History, this isn't in the Bible, but history tells us that the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem. Yeshua's disciples were all locked in the city. And for some reason, the Roman armies temporarily withdrew. When that happened, Yeshua's disciples all got out of town as fast as they could lickety split. Because their master had told them about four decades before that, when you see this Roman army surround Jerusalem, get out of town. And so they got out of Dodge and they survived. It's interesting. That's a little insight of Yeshua the prophet. Uh, Yeshua was talking to his disciples, his Talmudim, about stuff that was going to happen in the future, which includes like stuff that he says to us. He said a couple things like, guys, um, everybody's going to hate you because of me. Just be ready for that. Um, he said, you're going to have this temptation to kind of forget a lot of stuff and to kind of lose your focus. It might be because you love wild partying and you drink too much. It might be because you worry, you're a worry ward. Or it might be because you just get really comfortable and you're living pretty plush. But he said, those are the kinds of things that can kind of make you drowsy inside and kind of lose your edge, right? Watch out for that stuff is something Yeshua said. He also said when he comes back, 
the day of judgment. It's going to hit planet Earth, and it's going to be like... Have any of you ever seen mice on YouTube getting killed by mouse traps? Really interesting. I totally, like, seriously, get, look it up on YouTube. There are lots of pictures, you know, close up, high def, slow image pictures of mice coming up, nibbling the teas, and all of a sudden, boom, and the mouse is dead, right? And, and sometimes they do it in slow motion, so it's more like, and the mouse is dead. But anyway, um, or maybe you have, if you've ever played with gopher traps or bear traps, you ever seen those things? My, my, my grandpa used to have some. We used to like to set them and then poke sticks in there and they just snap. And he said, that's what it's going to be like when I come back. That's what the day of judgment is going to be like. A lot of people are going to be like the mouse. So it's going to really catch them by surprise. So he said, so guys, like, stay alert. Stay alert, right? And then finally, um, the last thing he said about that is, Here's something you can pray. He said, pray that you'll have strength. Pray that you'll have strength to escape all the stuff that's coming down the pipe and that you'll be able to stand before me, the Son of Man. And actually, when Genevieve and I got married, we put that right in our wedding vows. Like, our wedding vows are written out on this artistic document and they hang over our bed. And one of the things we put in our wedding vows is we said we pray that we would have strength as a family to escape the things that are going to hit the planet. I'm kind of paraphrasing and to stand before the Son of Man. Don't let us fall, God. Let us, let, us, let us be on our feet when Yeshua comes back. It's something we prayed. In Luke chapter 22, we have some interesting stuff about friends. If you've ever had a friend who walked out on you, who backstabbed you, who betrayed you, and maybe was really sweet about it and gave you a little kiss on the way out, just be comforted. You're not the first one. That totally happened to Yeshua too. Um, which is really sad, but it happened. He knows what it's like. Um, Yeshua's buddy Judas, one of his inner circle, totally backstabs him with a kiss. Um, in Luke 22, Yeshua sits down. He has the Passover meal, the Pesach supper with his disciples, and he offers them this cup of the... Uh, actually, this is interesting. You know the blessing that we sing before we have like a cup of wine for certain rituals and things? What do we, how does it end? Blessed are you, Lord of God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine, right? Bore prehagafen, we say in Hebrew. Kind of cool. When Yeshua held up that cup, he said, guys, I want you each to drink from this cup. It's a picture of the new covenant that you have with God and with me through my blood that shed for you. And I'm not going to drink this prehagafen. I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. So next time somebody tells you Passover doesn't matter anymore, Passover was totally fulfilled, ask them why Yeshua said that it's not going to be fulfilled until we drink wine with him in the kingdom of God. That's something to look forward to. What are you going to do with Yeshua when he comes back? Well, sometime in that next year, you're going to drink wine with him for Passover in the kingdom of God. That's going to be a beautiful experience. Look forward to it. Um, he offered his guys the bread, a picture of his broken body. And um, the Gospel of Luke is fascinating because it has several red-letter quotes. It has stuff that Yeshua said that you don't find in any other books. Like Matthew, Mark, John, they never mentioned it. I'm just going to throw a couple of them out there for you because it's really... It's really epic stuff, like the kinds of things that a heroic leader would say to his inner circle. Or like, like, like the team leader would say before they go into this crazy battle and, or, or something like that, right? These are the guys who have been with him for years. One of the things he said to them is, he looked around this inner circle over this last meal. And he said, guys, you're the ones who stood with me. You stood with me through my trials. 
And my Father has granted me a kingdom. And I'm, I'm granting to you, when I return, to sit down with me in that kingdom and to get to sit at my table and eat with me and drink with me. That's not something everybody's going to get to do. Having, like, doing coffee with the king, only his inner circle, only the knights of his realm get to experience that kind of stuff. And he said, that's going to be you guys. And you're also going to help me govern the nation of Israel when, you, when I get back. Apparently he's going to be governing the nation of Israel. The tribes of Israel are going to be around. And one of these apostles is going to be taking care of each tribe. Kind of interesting. Uh, Yeshua also, later on in the garden, he says, guys, you know, when you were with me, did you really lack anything? And they're like, no, master, we, we, you really took care of us. And he said, well, now, if you don't have a sword, sell your coat and buy a sword. It's kind of interesting. Maybe it's the theological basis for owning a gun. Just kidding. I don't, have, I don't know. But that's something that he says in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Judas shows up, shows the police who are going to arrest him, who it is by kissing him. Um, Yeshua is one of his best friends, Peter, denies even knowing the guy. He totally crumples, buckles, jumps out. Um, a bunch of thugs end up beating him up, spitting on him, mocking him out for half the night. And then finally, they end up with this kangaroo court and um, they end up convi like convicting him of like death because he, he answered a question. They said, so are you the son of God? And he said, yes, I am. And they said, ah, he's blaspheming. They all started tearing their clothes and freaking out. And they said, this guy needs to die, right? So anyway, those are some of the last words that we read in the Gospel of Luke in this week. Yes, I am the son of God. Do you believe that? What does that mean to you? What is that going to look like for this next week? Believing that he's the son of God. It's interesting. Hey, let's, uh, let's also talk about the book of Leviticus for a little bit here. Most people freak out when they hit the book of Leviticus, when they're reading through the Bible and they look around to make sure no one's looking, and then they skip it, right? But we're going to go deep in the book of Leviticus, and I'm going to give you some practical stuff from it. Um, this is um, Leviticus chapters 21 and 22. These are some interesting chapters that most of it just goes over our heads because it wasn't actually written for you. Leviticus 21 and 22 are instructions given for the priests. There's this guy named Aaron. He had some descendants. And they were like the priestly caste in the nation of Israel, right? And there's some instructions for them. And it's like the, the Hebrew word for a priest is a Kohen. Everybody say Kohen. And um, it kind of has the idea of like, like, you know, if a government official is officiating, it's kind of like that. Or it can have the idea of being an agent. So these are like God's agents. These are guys that are like working for his government. Those kinds of ideas, eh? And uh, over and over in these chapters, God says, I want you guys to be holy. What does the word holy mean to most people in our culture? Like if you just asked somebody at the mall, okay, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind, the first picture. And then you said, holy. What would they say? Maybe they would think of like people with halos on, or uh, the Pope, or uh, a church service. Like the word holy has severe religious baggage in our culture, right? I don't think, I don't know if we really understand the word. So when we read this and God is saying, yeah, I want my agents to be holy, we're like, what does that mean? And uh, we're going to look at that together here. The uh, Hebrew word for holy is kadosh. Everybody say kadosh. And it's from the Hebrew verb kadosh. And kadosh just means to separate something for a special task, set it apart for a purpose, um, make it special. 
can also mean like consecrating or dedicating someone. So like if you see an athlete who is dedicated to their sport, that person is holy for their sport. <laughs> That's the idea in Hebrew. Um, if you have, let's say uh, you're at the table and you have peanut butter and honey and you have a family member who freaks out if you get any peanut butter in the honey and my brother was like this so I know what it's like maybe he'll even make you use two knives one for the peanut butter and one for the honey the Hebrew word for that would be your one butter knife is holy for the peanut butter the other one is holy for the honey you're kinda of getting the idea here there's another really interesting meaning of this word the Hebrew word for engagement like you know when a guy and a girl are engaged to each other and they're gonna get married and there are lots of uh, warm fuzzies and butterflies and they just sit there and like gaze into each other's eyes for like 10 minutes straight like there's no one else in the room that kind of thing the Hebrew word for that is kiddushin everybody say kiddushin and it's from the same root word those people are holy for each other they're separated for each other they are special for each other right so that's when God is saying I want my priests to be holy are you kind of getting the idea? Those are a couple of examples of that in kind of everyday English. I'll help you understand this word a bit better. Do you know what the opposite of holiness is in Hebrew? It's the word halal. Everybody say halal. And you have to kind of hork. I can't hear you hork. Halal. Okay, yeah. yeah awesome. That's the word. It's, it's sometimes translated as profane. But usually in our culture, profane is like profanity. is like bleepity bleeping bleep of a bleep, right? That's what we think of when we think of profane. The Hebrew word halal, though, doesn't mean that. It just means something that's common. Like uh, normal. Like the butter knife that you use for everything. Or someone who is not engaged and they're available. Those are some examples of like the word for not holy, for, uh, for common, for halal. And um, this word pops up in four interesting objects in the Hebrew language. I'm going to tell them to you and I think you're going to get a huge understanding of what real holiness is all about. Um, how many of you have been to Emma Lake or to one of the lakes around here? What do you like to sit in? Do you like to, do you, what do you like to walk in? You take off your boots and you take off your, your socks and what do you like to walk around in? The sand. The Hebrew word for sand is hole. Everybody say hole. It's from the same root. So basically, if you want to understand something that's not holy, look at sand. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Actually, if you think about this for a second, it does. What's that? What if there are holes in the sand? Ooh. Oh, you are very wise. I do not know. I do not know that one. But um, here's, here's the thing. How many of you have ever looked at one speck of sand and said like, wow, that's a really special speck of sand. That's like a snowflake. There is no other speck of sand, just like this one. Like, you just don't do that, right? Because there's so much of this stuff, it's just sand. And that's the idea. Sand is common. Sand is nothing special. Sand gets everywhere. You know what I'm saying? It's the opposite of holy. That's the idea. Like, um, what would be an example of this in our experiences? Have you ever had a day or a week where it was just sheer monotony? Everything was the same. You just were going through the motions. You wake up in the morning, you're on autopilot, and then all of a sudden you're in bed. It's just like everything is common. Nothing is special. That's the idea. That's like, that's like not holy. All right? In Hebrew, that's the, that's the concept. Um, hold that thought. 
I'll give you three more objects, and they're all related to each other in Hebrew. I want to see if you can figure this out. This is gonna this is gonna be a real mind bender for you. Three things, and they have something in common. What do a flute? Everybody say flute. A tunnel. Everybody say tunnel. And a corpse. Everybody say corpse. Have in common. So a flute, a tunnel, and a corpse. What do they all have in common? Because they're all related in Hebrew. That's a tough one, hey? How about just a flute in a tunnel? If you can imagine a flute in a tunnel, is there something similar between those two things? That's right, they're hollow. And is a corpse hollow also? It actually is, isn't it? And um, so the Hebrew word, these are all related in Hebrew. A flute is a chalil. Everybody say chalil. It's from that root halal, which means common or profane or empty. Um, a tunnel is a machila. Everybody say machila. And then a corpse is a halal. Everybody say halal. Right? So um, the idea of like something that's not holy, something that's common, is it's kind of empty. There's kind of this hollowness, hollowness to it. Have you ever had a day like that? Have you ever... Okay, I have buddies who work at the pen. And there's kind of these legendary stories at the pen about guys who have done really wicked things and who kind of gave their souls to the devil and there's nothing inside of them. It's probably the kind of stories pen workers tell like around a campfire late at night after too many drinks, right? But like, there's like, they, there, there are these stories about people, you look in their eyes and there's nothing there. There's no spark of life. It's like they're empty inside. Zombies. Walk, like walking dead. That kind of idea, hey? Um, I don't know, have any of you ever felt like that a little bit? Have you ever seen people like that in your city? Maybe you've worked with people like that. How many of you have ever just had a day where you were really stinking bored? And like you just ever wondered why? It might be because something in you is empty. All of, all of these ideas are connected in Hebrew, right? They're all connected to the idea of not holy. So if you ever like have a day or a week where everything is just like really boring and you're just feeling empty and it's blah, 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 the same, it might be, it might be because you've lost your dedication to God and God's mission. Because in my experience, and also when you look at this word, when you have that like dedication to God and you're passionate for Him, when you know what your mission is and you're living for the mission, life has a lot of sparkle and pop. And you just don't get bored, actually. And maybe you've noticed, but at times like that, you don't really feel very empty either. You often feel really full. You're just like a, with a full gas tank and you're good to go, right? So um, maybe you know people and their lives are like that and they have no clue why and they don't know what to do. It's like, I'm really bored with life. I feel empty inside. It, I just want to kill myself because I'm sick of this. Maybe you know people like that. Here's, here's something really simple for people like that or for us. That's point A. Point B is like where you have a mission, where life has sparkle, where you're going somewhere, where your heart is full. And uh, I want to just give you a little roadmap for how to get to point, from point A to point B because maybe it'll be helpful for somebody in your life. Maybe it'll be help, even be helpful for you at some point. This is kind of the good news. Um, three times in Leviticus chapters 21 and 22, God says, I'm the one who makes them holy. He didn't say... Tell these guys to get their act together and make themselves holy. 
He said, I'm the one who makes them holy. That's really good news. Because some of us have tried, eh? Some of us have tried to get that sparkle back in our lives, to try and figure out where in the world we're going with our life. And we're just like, you know what? I've tried so many things. I've tried these hobbies. I've tried this positive thinking. I read the book. I did everything. And I'm still the same. And the answer is, yeah, that's because you're trying to do it. And you can't do that for yourself. But the Creator, He's there. And He says, I want to come into your life. I want to put that sparkle back into your life. And you know what? Should you choose to accept it? I've got a mission for you to live for. How does he do that? This is really cool too. Um, in this chapter, it talks about the Kohen Hagadol. That's the Hebrew word for the high priest. And the high priest, everybody knew he was the high priest because they had this special ritual where someone took a bottle of extra virgin olive oil with lots of really nice spices in it. It was like ancient Middle Eastern cologne and they dumped it on the guy's head. And everybody watched and he smelled fantastic after that. And after that, everybody said, that guy is the high priest. And um, that extra virgin olive oil slash ancient Middle Eastern cologne that the high priest got to wear it talks about in Leviticus 21 verse 12. It says, the consecration, everybody say consecration. That's the idea of holiness, right? Dedication to a cause. The consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. So that's the secret right there. How do you, how do you get that in your life? It's pictured by getting a bottle of olive oil dumped on your head. That doesn't make any sense, right? Unless you ask, what is that a picture of? Getting olive oil dumped on your head is an emblem of something. In, in, in the holy book, it's a picture of having God pour out His Spirit on you. I don't know, like, you know how oil is smooth? And it's almost like if you've ever had, it's almost like maybe the same feeling as if you've ever had a hot shower after a really long, hard day of work. And you can just feel the water washing over you. You can just feel like if you ever get a real nice head of shampoo and it just washes over you, that would be the same feeling, right? And I don't know about you, but I think, I, when I feel that, I think, Man, that's what it feels like when God pours His love on somebody. That's what it feels like when God pours His Holy Spirit on somebody. It makes you new inside. It empowers you. And so, that's the good news for people who need a mission, who need sparkle in their lives. God says, my Holy Spirit is real and I want to pour my Holy Spirit out on you. And it is going to move you in that mission. It's going to make you new inside. And here's how you, how, here's how you do it. Say yes to me. Yeshua is alive and Yeshua is calling you to be his disciple. You say yes to that call. You go for him and I will give you my Holy Spirit. I guarantee it. It is my promise. That's what God says. That's how it happens. Sometimes we as disciples, we're like, yeah, great. I tried that. And quite frankly, I'm still bored and I have no clue why I'm here. And uh, this is just not connecting for me. Here's a little tip for you if you ever feel like that. God says, you don't just believe in Yeshua and start following him to be his disciple. It says God gives his Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So it might not hurt just to be like, God, I'm just not feeling it. Could you give me more of your Holy Spirit? God really likes it when you do that. He'll totally dump the bottle on you, if you know what I'm saying. And the other thing it says is, God gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So if you're just not feeling it and you're not seeing the Holy Spirit in your life, I don't know, maybe there's some area of your life where you're not really dedicated to Him. Maybe there's some area where you're kind of playing fast and loose with Him or you're messing with Him. And maybe you need to be like, okay, God, 
I'm going to be in 100% with you and I'm going to read this book and I'm going to do all the stuff in it that applies to me. You might find when you do that, that that pop comes back. It's, uh, it's something to consider. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23, the next chapter in the Torah, it's, um, it's like really cool. It's all of these, um, they're called Moedim in Hebrew. Everybody say Moedim. The singular is a Moed. I'll tell you a little story to help you understand what this Hebrew word is. Uh, Genevieve and I have a party every Sunday. Sunday morning, we get out our day timers and we have a day timer party. And so I'm like, okay, what are you doing this week? And she's like, da-da-da-da-da, and she tells me what she's doing. And then I'm like, and I'm doing this, da-da-da-da-da. And then we're like, oh no, we both need the vehicle. We have to figure this thing out, right? That kind of thing. And I mean, that's the business end of things. But then we get to our favorite part of our daytimer party where I get to say, I really, you're really cute. Do you want to go out with me this week? Like on a date? And she actually, she usually says yes. And, uh, and so, you know, we set a time, we decide what we're going to do, and Genevieve goes on a date with me, and it's fantastic, right? That is that Hebrew word. We set a date. We made an appointed time. We arranged a rendezvous. And that's the Hebrew word moed. In Leviticus chapter 23, God says, Okay, guys, I've got a set of moedim. I've got a set of those. There are, times, there are times and places when I want to rendezvous you with you. There are times when I want to take you out on a date with me. And then um, several times in this chapter, he'll say, Okay, so on this day of this month, I want you to take the day off work. Don't work. It kind of makes sense. Because, like for Genevieve and me, I have a really hard time working and going out on a date with her at the same time. In fact, if you even just take your work with you on a date, you are not going to have a relationship that lasts very long, right? So number one, God says, okay, I've got these days. Take the day off work. Don't work on that day. How come? Because he's a big, bad, mean God? No! It's because he loves his people. And he's like, I want you to take the day off and spend time with me, right? It's a date. So that's one of the things he says. The other thing God says several times is, this is a chok olam. In, in English, that means this is a law forever. Now here's the crazy thing. God says over and over, okay, you know, I have these dates. I want my people to take the day off work, get together, all this stuff. And this is a law forever. Those are the exact things that most people today in the church say, those are done away with. Those were temporary. Those were for a past dispensation. They're not really a law forever. Really weird. I don't understand that one, quite frankly. But um, anyway, if you've never like tried these appointed times, totally check it out. Uh, they, they would be like Passover would be one, um, unleavened bread, uh, counting up to the festival of weeks, which is like in uh, two weeks from now. Pretty pumped about that. Uh, the Day of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and then booths where you get to build a big fort in your backyard and camp out for a week. Um, those are basically the days, right? And every one of them, they have all these layers of meaning. It's really sweet. Like, they have these agricultural meanings. So if you're a farmer, like you do certain things on the farm during those days. They have this um, personal meaning. It's like, okay, Passover is about freedom. So there's this theme of freedom in my personal life during that, during that, that season, right? Um, they also have this prophetic layer of meaning where like Yeshua died right on Passover day. He poured out the Holy Spirit right on Pentecost or the festival of weeks. He's probably going to come back around the day of trumpets because nothing happened on that day. There's this prophetic layer, right? So anyway, there are all these layers. What I would simply say is 
if you've never done, if you've never do, gone on those dates with God, I would encourage you to try it out. Give it, give it one year. Try it out for one year, and I guarantee you, you will never go back. So, as a community, we do those days. We have great times. If you can, I hope you can check your calendar. Take those days off work if possible so you can have that quality time with the Creator and with each other. And uh, it's going to be a blast. We're going to do those things together as a community. Um, finally, in Leviticus chapter 24, the last chapter in this reading, uh, God talks about the olive oil for the lamp. He said it's like a ner tamid. It's a lamp that never goes out. It's a picture of your spirit and how God wants to pour that oil on your spirit, burn for Him. Um, how many of you know what challah is? How many of you had challah today? Anybody? Challah is like that braided bread. Did you know where we get that tradition from? We have that braided, like, really sweet Sabbath bread every Friday night. We get that from this passage because the, the priests used to take a full gallon of flour, like an ice cream bucket, and they'd make 12 loaves, like with like that much in each one, right? And so when, we have, when you have challah, just remember, that's like a little echo of the ancient times when the priest would make that in the temple. And then finally, the last story we read in these readings is a story about this guy in the camp of Israel with an Egyptian dad and an Israeli mom, and he gets in a fight, and he ends up cussing and taking God's name in vain. And so they tackle the guy, they arrest the guy, and Moses is like, God, what do you want us to do with this guy? He just, cussed, he just took your name in vain, right? And God said, take him outside the camp and execute him. And that's what they did. They took the guy outside the camp and they, everybody threw rocks at him until he died. It's a pretty tough story. People don't really do that today. But I just think maybe that story is a little picture of how God feels when we mess with him, when we don't take him seriously, when we take his name in vain, like we sometimes bleepity bleeping bleep do, right? So anyway, it's just something to think about. Like God is serious, you know, he's so loving, he's so kind and merciful, but there's also this hard side to him, there's a just side. And he doesn't want to judge people, but sometimes like, if that's all we want, it's what he might have to give people sometimes. Just glad he gives us a way out through Yeshua. So, woohoo! That's our readings for the week. Um, those are some stories and some things that we learn. Uh, hopefully you learned something new. Uh, hopefully you got something practical that you can take home with you. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. 
That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.